Let's uh, take out our Bibles again and turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, and today we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 15. John 6, starting in verse 1. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Pay careful attention to the reading of it. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, he, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread, so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of, the, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and filled twelve baskets with fragments, from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The grass withers, the flower falls, of the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Thank you, O God, for the reading of your word. We pray, Father, that you would give us now um, attentive hearts and minds to the preaching of your word. God, there are many distractions in our minds. There are cute children around us. There is lunch later. There are fellowship opportunities. So much of the burdens of this world are on our hearts and minds. But God, help us to clear that away, even for the short moment, that we might hear your word, that we might apply your word in our lives and our hearts, that we would know more about Christ today. Bless this preaching of your word. Be with this, your servant. Help the words that are said today be truth. Um, that you would rule and overrule even my own foolishness. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, bound up in the heart of every person is an inherent need to be rescued. To be rescued in some fashion. And understanding 
that the world around us is not all that it should be or it could be. Now how this need for rescue is manifested and and what the nature of that rescue is may vary from person to person and from time to time. In some cases, people are looking for an outside or or looking, looking on the outside for a Messiah, while others are looking even to themselves to be to fill that role. They would save themselves somehow. And what they perceive is wrong with the world will differ from group to group and from person to person. But whatever the case may be, everyone has a sense of some of the brokenness of this present world. Something which is deeply wrong in life. And in some sense, we see some measure of this in our political discourse, in our own day, don't we? We, we see, you know, if we were to divide it, you know, the, the nation in half, and, and really it's more complicated than that, but you know, people on various political stripes say there's something wrong here that we think we have the right answer to. Are not people seeking a savior of some sort? having the right person elected to political office, or having the right piece of legislation passed, or, or perhaps generally getting over on the other guy, because, you know, they're just flat wrong. Don't we, or don't, don't people in our day, maybe it's us too, but isn't there a sense of wanting a strong man who will come fight our battles for us? Someone who will win the victories on our behalf? This world is searching for some sort of Messiah. It's sort of built into our hearts. They desire a leader who will take up their cause, who will right what is wrong, maybe in our own nation, maybe in the world. Well, as we turn our attention again to the text that is before us, uh, John chapter 6, what we are finding here is a people who have been suffering. We're seeing a people who are poor, and who are seeking to have something of their agenda met. They would like to have a a leader. What they've seen are the miracles of Jesus, and so they are running after him. And they are there to be fed by him, bread, and so they will seek food for their bellies, and they will seek a, a king for their throne. They see in Jesus a savior king, and in this they are not wrong. But they are seeking after the wrong sort of king. Now I trust that for most of us, the account before us is a familiar one. Most of us surely have heard of and read of the feeding of the 5,000. In fact, this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, is actually the only miracle during Jesus' ministry which is recorded in all four of the Gospel of Counts. And Mark's account in particular provides us with some additional data to help fill in some of the gaps in John. Now, John's Gospel introduces this this new topic in chapter 6 by saying, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Uh, So it has been some time since the previous events in John's Gospel. uh, That is the discourse that he had with the religious leaders at the temple. 
Uh, remember that Jesus had healed a lame man. There were some questions about his activities and the things he said that could be done on the Sabbath. And so there's this discourse, this discussion, which takes place. Uh, but the timing of that's vague. We don't know how much time has, has uh, gone by uh, from when that had happened and now where he's back in Galilee. But we do know this. Jesus has left Jerusalem. He's, uh, he's left the area of Judea and he's returned to Galilee. Uh, this time he's gone to the far shore or the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, Mark actually fills in some gaps for us. In Mark chapter 6, that's where uh, it's recorded, um, this, this same miracle is recorded in Mark. Uh, he explains that the disciples had, in between these things, had just gone out two by two and they had done evangelism. Uh, they had heard also that John the Baptist had been executed by King Herod. And so, uh, after the work that they've been doing of going out two by two, you know, they're, they're tired, they're weary from their travels, and perhaps they're sad. Uh, they're mourning, uh, hearing about John the Baptist. And so Jesus invites them to go away with him to a desolate place, some place where, they could, uh, where he could sort of teach them and they can be refreshed. And so this may explain why they make this trip across the Sea of Galilee. Now John also mentions that there was another name for the sea, and that is the Sea of Tiberias. And so the large lake, which is the Sea of Galilee, has in fact gone by a number of different names. Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, in Old Testament times, the Sea of Galilee is referred to as Kinnereth, which means harp or lyre. And it's named that because of its shape. It sort of looks like that musical instrument. Later, Herod Antipas uh, founded a city on the western shore of the lake, in, which is called uh, Tiberias, in honor of the Roman emperor. Uh, Emperor Tiberius Caesar. And so the name of that town had then be begun to be applied to the lake itself. And so John also provides us the alternative name uh, for his readers. And perhaps he tells us this as a bit of a clue for what is to come. Because particularly if you think about what happens in verse 15... And the people's desire to make Jesus their king by force. So, you know, I, I can't say that definitively, but I kind of wonder if, if John isn't sort of including that little bit of information to sort of set the stage uh, for what is coming. And so Jesus and his disciples have left the, the hustle and bustle of ministry in Judea and Jerusalem. And he and his disciples, they travel uh, to Galilee and to the far side of uh, the Sea of Galilee. But their period of repose and rest will be short. Uh, we read that a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And so Jesus and the disciples have this, this crowd who have now followed them. They'd heard about what was going on. Perhaps they'd seen some of this. And they, they had followed him because of the signs that he had performed. Now, this crowd that followed him is different from the one that um, he had interacted with at the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, this group of people in Jerusalem, he was dealing with you know, a lot of the leaders. 
right? The priests, the scribes, Pharisees. Here, really, he's dealing with sort of the everyday folk. These are everyday people. But like the religious leaders, like the scribes and Pharisees, they too had a particular idea in mind as to what they wanted out of Jesus. The crowds had heard and seen the miracles of Jesus. They'd seen the work of the disciples. Um, Again, Mark's gospel provides a little bit of that information. But they're not following Jesus because they're interested in his teaching. It doesn't say, well, they heard about his great teaching and they wanted to you know, follow after him. That's, that's actually not why they're coming. That's going to become more clear, by the way, in the discourse which follows, starting in verse 22 and onward. We'll get to that in a few weeks. They're not seeking to live in obedience to his word. What they saw, what they saw was a miracle worker. They saw someone who had challenged the religious leader's authority, you know, someone who's making the authorities worry a little bit. They had seen him make sick men to be well. And so they wanted more of that sort of thing. Many of these people were poor. They're needy. And so here is one who could heal the sick. Here is one who could make the lame to walk. Who could make the blind to see. Here is one, and we'll see this in a minute. Here is one who could provide food for the hungry. I mean, this guy's kind of awesome. He's, he's giving us lots of things. In verse, in verse 26, later on in the discourse, Jesus will criticize them after he provides the sign as he pinpoints their interests. Their interest was not in him and in the sign that he performed, which pointed, by the way, to spiritual things. What they were interested in is the food and the healings which he provides. Now, up to this point in John, uh, we only have recorded one healing event in Galilee. There, there were other ones in Jerusalem, but in Galilee, there was only one healing event, and that was the official son. But there were other healings that were going on. Uh, verse 2 indicates this. These things, of course, just aren't recorded for us in John, but there were other healings that were done. And so, with such a great crowd uh, coming Jesus, had, you know, they've crossed over, uh, over the lake, over the Sea of Galilee, and so Jesus goes up on the mountain. Now, the Greek word here, uh, oros, doesn't necessarily refer to a particular mountain or to a particular hill, but, but to the high ground, which is around the lake. And since we, don't, since we know that this is the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, uh, the high country referred to here is probably what is known to us today as the Golan Heights. Again, Mark fills in some of the gaps. He records in Mark chapter 6 and verse 32 that Jesus was seeking a desolate place, away from the crowds, so that he could meet with his disciples Alone, But as we see in John, and as Mark records, of course, as well, the crowds who sought him out were now closing in on him. Evidently, the news of Jesus and his disciples being back in the region of Galilee had spread from village to village and from town to town. And so now a, a large multitude of people were coming and they were closing in. And they were seeking healings and miracles. Now, John provides one more bit of important context in verse 4. 
Again, this is the sort of thing that sometimes we read right past. He says in verse 4, The Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. It's actually a pretty significant piece of information. Now this little note is not so much chronological as it is theological. It's not just, you know, here's the timing of year, it is. There's something actually significant theologically about this note. The, past of, the, the feast of Passover was celebrated, of course, to commemorate the deliverance of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. On the night of their deliverance, the children of Israel were to slaughter a lamb. They were put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. And those who were inside the house, which is covered by the blood of the angel of death, would pass over them, and thus their firstborn was not to die. And the slaughter of a lamb then is a part of the celebration of Passover. And of course, significantly enough, uh, Jesus is the Lamb of God. Now that Passover, uh, the Passover was near, introduces into the narrative a, a complexity of theological connections. There's a a lot of things that we can sort of connect together here. In in the immediate context, we have the feeding of the 5,000, which will later be followed by the bread of life discourse. And of course, Jesus makes the very important point that he is. Jesus is the bread of life. In that discourse, uh, Jesus identifies his own flesh as true bread that must be given for the life of the world. John 6, 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then John 6, 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And if anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So this bread that Jesus says that he gives must be eaten to have eternal life. In addition, we have the celebration as the celebration of the Passover is mentioned. You know, I mentioned the slaughtering of the lamb. And in the Gospel of John has already declared that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So the sacrifice of Jesus supersedes the lamb slaughtered for the Passover. As the blood of Jesus covers the sins of his people, all those who are in him. All those who are his by faith. The feeding of the 5,000 in the immediate context, the reference to the Exodus account brings to mind the account, the account recorded in Scripture of the Exodus people. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and were fed through Moses the bread which came down from heaven, that is the manna. And so God sustained and fed His people through the mediation of Moses as they awaited their entrance into the promised land. They were given bread which came down from heaven. And again, bear in mind that Jesus is himself the bread which comes from heaven. He is the Passover lamb. He has come to deliver his elect people from bondage and destruction. He has come to nourish and to strengthen the faith of his people. In fact, one cannot really understand the rest of the discourse here without understanding something of the significance of what is meant in verse 4. A very simple 
almost the sort of thing you kind of pass right by, and yet it's actually really significant. The movement from the miracle in chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000, to the discourse of Jesus as the bread of life, His flesh being true food, the connection to the, the Exodus account, the connection of the Exodus then to the cross of Christ, the covering of blood, the Lamb of God. None of this makes any sense without taking into account the context of what John is said already in John, Jesus is the Lamb of God who was sacrificed on behalf of his people. All that, all that has to be kept in mind. We have to, we have to take all, all of this together, which is hard when you're talking about a large book, right? All this, a lot of information going on here. Jesus is the bread which has come down from heaven. Jesus is the Lamb. And so this is something of the theological context for what is about to take place in the feeding of the 5,000. However, there is one more bit of context which should be kept in mind. And that is what was perhaps in the minds of the people themselves. How were they understanding the Passover celebration? You see, for the first uh, century Jew, for the Jews of this time period, the Passover celebration was an important nationalistic feast. Perhaps we might say there's some similarity to our um, own American celebration of the 4th of July. But actually, that's pretty minuscule in comparison because they had a, there was a stronger connection to their own national and religious identity. The Passover was for them a, a strong rallying point that was pregnant with much nationalistic and religious zeal. Remember that many of the Jews were wondering, when were the shackles of Rome to be cast off of them? That sort of nationalistic fervor, which may have existed among the people, perhaps goes a long way in explaining why the people will, in in verse 15, try to force Jesus to become their king. And so we want to keep that bit in mind also. Now, lifting up his eyes... We're back in the text. Jesus sees this crowd that's coming towards him. Uh, Again, Mark 6 applied some additional context. When Jesus and his disciples had gone into a boat to the other side of the lake, many of the people had run on foot from town to town and village to village. And they had gone around the north end of the lake in order to catch them on the eastern end. And so now... That they were on an elevated place. You know, Jesus and his disciples had gone up the mountain. Jesus is seeing this large multitude of people as they come closer and closer. Now, evidently he taught them at some length as they came. And then this will lead then to the problem, or the seeming problem, of feeding such a vast crowd of people. And so John reports that Jesus turns to Philip and he asks him, Where are we to buy bread so these people may eat? Where are we going to go? How are we going to feed all these people, Philip? Now, it's not that Jesus did not understand the situation. He did very well understand. In fact, John adds this comment in verse 6 to keep the reader from thinking that perhaps Jesus was unaware of what was going to happen. It was well understood the fact that there was no place to go and purchase food. They're in a desolate place. Mark adds the detail that the hour was late 
there in this desolate place. And Jesus is then setting the stage for his disciples of the sign which he was about to perform. A sign of feeding a crowd of people in a desolate wilderness place. Doesn't that sound sort of familiar to you at all? When was another time that God fed a whole multitude of people in a desolate place? Huh, what comes to mind? The Exodus. Hmm. Well, Jesus knows what he's going to do. Jesus' statement to Philip was to test him. But notice that Philip had begun to calculate the math. How in the world are we supposed to feed this many people? Why are you asking me this, Jesus? How much money was it going to take? Philip is thinking in terms of physical and natural world. 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough to feed them, even to give them just a little bit. In other words... Uh, Jesus, I hate to break it to you, but we don't really have the finances to purchase even a small morsel for everybody. Now, now understand that one denarii was about a day's wage for a laborer. Okay, so that one denarii is one day's uh, wage for a laborer, and 200 denarii would be approximately eight months of wages. So, you know, maybe that's a, as much food as could be purchased. That, how, how much a laborer could feed his family for around that period of time. And we can presume, based on this, and also Mark chapter 6, that this was the amount of money which the disciples had on hand. They apparently had about 200 denarii. You know, he's doing the math, he's thinking, okay, here's what we got. We don't have enough to feed this many people. Here's the point. The crowd is so large that the disciples are realizing they don't have the resources to feed them. Even the smallest amount. But even if they did have the money, which of course they don't have the money, but even if they did have the money, there's no place to actually go and buy anything anyway. So there's no money and nowhere to buy food. Again, this illustrates something of, and, and, and Jesus wants to make sure it's understood. This is an impossible situation, right? There's, there's nowhere to buy food and there's no money to buy with anyway. Now Andrew, and we were, and we were reminded this is uh, Simon Peter's brother, he introduces a boy into the situation who, who so, just so happened to have five, five barley loaves and two fishes. Now, John's Gospel is the only one to tell us what sort of bread he has. And barley loaves are, is the bread of the poor. So there is this little bit of food that is introduced. But Andrew quickly admits that this small amount of food is totally inadequate to feed such a large crowd of people. But what are they for so many? You know, what, what good is you know, a, a five barley loaves and a couple of fish? I mean, what are we supposed to do with that? I mean, this is what we got, but what are we supposed to do with that? What good would such, would such a tiny contribution be? And so the situation is impossible. There's no money and there's no food to feed the strong of people. But Jesus is unperturbed by the seeming problem. He doesn't see this as a problem. Notice, too, that he doesn't rebuke his disciples for lack of faith. He doesn't say, you know, what's wrong with you people? Don't you know what I can do? He doesn't say anything like that. All he does is he instructs them to have the people sit down. 
The people were to sit in orderly fashion in preparation for the meal. Now the number of people, or the number of men given was 5,000, which means the total amount of people, which would include then women and children, may have been, may have been as much as 20,000 people, 5,000 of which were men. Now, Matthew mentions the existence of the women and children being there. Um, John doesn't mention that, but Matthew mentions also not to include the women and children. Okay, so we have 5,000 men specifically, and then women and children could have been as much as 20,000. Now, we might ask, why are only the men mentioned in John? And why is the number specified as 5,000 men? Well, in light of verse 15, where the men tried to make Jesus to be their king by force, the specific mention of 5,000 men perhaps indicates the potential for an army of eager guerrilla fighters who would perhaps follow the right leader to overthrow Rome's stooge king. Mark tells us that they sat in fifties and hundreds. Did the men sit in such an orderly fashion because they expected a miracle to take place? Or did they think that they were being organized as a militia force? With such a large crowd of people, different men may have had different expectations, different hopes. The scripture doesn't reveal these things to us. We might presume a few things, but we don't know. What we do know is they sat down in this orderly way in 50s and 100s, according to Mark. Then Jesus, taking the loaves of bread, gave thanks to God, and then he distributed them to those who were seated. Note that Jesus does not bless the food. He he blesses God. He gives thanks to God who provides the food. The thanksgiving which he renders comes before the miracle which then follows. Notice, too, that John highlights the lavishness of the gift. The people ate as much of the bread and fish as they wanted. They could have as much as they wanted. They could eat their fill. It's so lavish. What is given is far more than 200 denarii could have purchased. It was far more than 5,000 men, along with their women and children, could have brought with them and eaten. This, by the way, this little bit about how much they ate and how much leftovers points to, this wasn't just sort of a, hey, you know, like we're out here in this desolate place, let's have a potluck. Like, you know, start gathering things together. This makes that patently ridiculous. By, which, by the way, is the idea that some people have on this. They think, oh, like, well, you know, what probably happened is, oh, we saw this boy with some, oh, we, we've got a little food, let's bring it out. People weren't, you know, lugging their pot, you know, crock pots along with them. You know, they were, remember, they ran around the lake. They didn't bring a bunch of food with them, okay? There's a real miracle that takes place, and it's not potluck. Jesus provides a lavish meal for these people who have come. It's far more than the, the small amount the boy had brought. All the evidence points to a miraculous event. The true bread from heaven who gives life to the world is greater than the manna given in the wilderness. The physical satisfaction of the people through this abundant supply of fish and bread points to the spiritual satisfaction which comes from the one who is the bread of life. Who, the one who, who does feed his people spiritually. 
And after everyone had eaten and eaten their fill, the disciples were instructed to gather up the leftovers so that nothing was lost. What is portrayed here is not a moral lesson. This isn't about sharing food. This is about the miracle of the bread of life who feeds his people. Now you might wonder, though, where, where does the miracle t- take place? Does it take place when he gave thanks? Does it take place as it's distributed? Do the loaves and fish multiply in his hands? Do they multiply in the baskets as they're passed? How does the Lord multiply the provisions? Here's my answer. I don't know. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell me. I just know it happened. But I don't know how he did it. Bread becomes more bread. Fish becomes more fish. A transformative miracle takes place. And Jesus gives a generous abundance. Remember, everybody can have their fill. They can eat as much as they could possibly eat, and there's still leftovers. In fact, there's a, there are 12 baskets of leftover fragments that are collected. 12 baskets of fragments. The provided feast provides for the needs of the people, but nothing goes to waste. Twelve baskets are filled to the top. And the collection of those twelve, that's got to be significant too. The Lord had provided enough for all of Israel, all of the twelve tribes. Which is to say that the people of faith can rest assured, Jesus is enough, beloved congregation. Jesus is enough. This brings to mind the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1.3 who says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Jesus is enough. Jesus has provided an abundance. This abundant provision from the Lord reminds us of the promises of provision in Jeremiah chapter 31 where the Lord declares, My people shall be satisfied with my goodness. And again, I will satisfy the weary soul and every languishing soul I will replenish. The Lord provides an abundance of himself for his people. This abundant provision which is for all people becomes particularly important in light of what is to come next as Jesus gives the discourse, as he explains the significance of the sign. Jesus is himself the bread of life who comes down from heaven. His grace is sufficient for you. He has enough within himself to nourish all the weary souls because he is the Son of God. And I, but I know that among, among you here, you are weary souls. He is enough to satisfy you. Seeing the sign that had been performed, the people say in verse 14, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Now this, is, this reference is to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, where Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. Now, the first century Jews understood Deuteronomy 18 messianically. And so, so being that Jesus provided an abundance of bread, and, you know, there's a lot of things going on here. He's on this elevated place, they're in a desolate place, 
bread is, is provided for them, just as Moses had provided. You know, they see him in a Mo, the Moses uh, place. He's providing the manna in the wilderness. And so they believed that someone like Moses was going to come and was going to bring manna to the people. Now the thing is, of course, is they weren't wrong per se. It's not that they were totally wrong about this. They just just misunderstood the significance of what had just taken place. They were focused on the food. They were focused on the possibility of defeating their enemies. They were not seeing the self-disclosure of the divine Son come in the flesh. They were not understanding the Son has come as the bread of life. They were not seeing their own true need of salvation and and the mediation with God. Jesus, through supernatural divine means, understood what the people were going to do. He understood that they were about to take him by force, that they were going to make him to be their king. They were overcome with the excitement of what had just taken place. Couple that with that nationalistic fervor we talked about earlier with how they understood the Passover. And and so they're thinking that Jesus has come as the eschatological prophet of Moses, and they're ready to make him to be their king. Now, again, they're not totally wrong, right? They're totally wrong. They're a little bit wrong, which makes them off from what is really going on here. The crowd had seen and heard of Jesus' miraculous healing powers. They had been fed by his power. And so surely they think, surely this man is the liberator and king that we've been waiting for. Surely this man will take on a leadership role. Surely he will overthrow the authorities. And so they, the, the men were poised and ready to follow Jesus. They were ready to take up a re- rebellion against Rome. At least this was perhaps their hope. But similar to the religious leaders, Jesus was not the sort of Messiah that they had been looking for. Jesus was not to take up the mantle of rebellion that they wanted. And so he withdraws from them and goes further up the mountain, even as the disciples go out in their boats ahead of him. Now again, in one sense, they're not wrong that Jesus is king. They're right about that. Jesus is king. But they were wrong on the sort of king that he is. The sort of king they wanted and the sort of king they needed were quite different indeed. What they needed was not someone who would take on Rome. And by the way, that battle would have met a disastrous end. What they needed was a king who would subdue us to himself, who would rule and defend, who would restrain and conquer all his and our enemies. The nature of Christ's kingship is a major issue in the account of his crucifixion. Jesus, though, is a king like no other. Remember, what is on the cross? He's the king of the Jews. But he's not like any other king. Jesus was not going to defeat his and our enemies through a bloody siege of warfare. He would defeat all his and our enemies through the bloody sacrifice of himself on the cross. Jesus would die on the cross and he would rise again from the dead in victory over sin and death. He will subdue us and rule over us through his word and spirit. And ultimately, Jesus does actually overthrow Rome. Just as all of nations are overthrown 
through the preaching of the Word of God, through the transformation of human hearts by the Spirit. In fact, all of Western civilization, all that we hold dear to us now, has been transformed, has been shaped by the Church of Jesus Christ as it has spread, as it spread through that empire. And now that empire is no more, but the Church continues in spreading all over throughout many empires and nations. All of the world is being subdued. All of the world is being defeated as the church of Jesus Christ spreads throughout the world because the gates of hell cannot prevail against Christ and His church. Jesus, beloved congregation, is a different sort of king from the one that those people wanted. He was, not going to, he was not becoming a king so he could defend a small piece of dirt in Palestine. That's not what his purpose was. He was to be the king of kings who would rule the world through the conversion of people. Through the rescue of souls from the clutches of hell. And that rule will come through blood at the cross. It will come through the empty tomb. Jesus came to bring life, true life, because he is the bread of life. And this becomes more clear as we get into the discourse, which is, you know, just have to wait for it. Well, we'll get to it, but you have to wait for that at another time. Well, as we kind of come back to where we started, you know, the world does need rescue, doesn't it? The world is in sin. They need a Messiah. They, they need a king. But they need a different sort of Messiah and a different sort of king than what they want in their hearts. And we see this with these people. They, they did need a king. They did need rescue. But Jesus was turning out to be a different sort of king, a different sort of Messiah. The people were seeking Jesus because of the bread But they were working for food which perishes. And what they needed was that which was imperishable. That's something that was true and lasting. They needed rescue, this is true, but not from their present circumstances. Not from the tyranny of a rotten king or because of the shackles of Rome. What they needed was rescue from the flesh, the world, and the devil. What they needed to be rescued from was from sin. The tyranny of sin. The enslavement of living in sin. Well, as Christians, we should recognize that this, this need for rescue is real. We understand that what we need is to be saved from bondage to sin. What a person needs is to be brought from darkness into light. From death to life. And as Christians, we have a king who does all things well. A king who has mediated between sinful men and a holy and righteous God. Therefore, our confidence is not in princes. Our trust is not in chariots or horses. Just think about the Psalms. To put it in modern terms, our hope is not in tanks and guns. Our hope is not found in presidents and generals. Our trust must be in the Lord our God. We need to remember this, particularly you know, as we come into another election cycle. Where is our hope found? 
The nations and empires of this world will come and go. This nation will come and go. All, all empires and all nations eventually collapse and fall to be replaced with other ones. But we stand with our God and with our King. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that we, don't, we, that we sort of stand aloof in the world, that we don't care that the world falls apart around us. Don't, don't hear me saying that. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be concerned for our present leaders or that we should be uninvolved in matters of government and state. I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying, where is our actual hope found in? Do we want Jesus to be our king because he's going to defeat our physical enemies and put into power people that we want? Or do we have a king who is a king of us totally, our hearts, our souls, who has rescued us from our sin? You know, the scriptures do call us to pray for kings and governors and those who hold authority. The point is that through the, though the nations of this world may falter and fall, our God and King reigns. Jesus Christ is the King of Kings. He came to set the captives free. He came to redeem sinners by His blood because He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the bread of life come down from heaven. And we need to trust Him by faith. Faith, which is a free gift from God. The rebels have been justified and made to be adopted sons by faith in Him. And one day this great King, Jesus Christ the righteous, will return in glory. And He will renew all things to Himself. And His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, which there is no end. Let us, beloved congregation, rejoice in Him and the promises of His return again. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank You for your word. We are, uh, we, we, we confess that sometimes we read of the feeding of the 5,000 and we too are just seeking bread. That we miss the significance of what you did there. That your feeding of the people points to the greater thing, which is Jesus himself who feeds us, himself, of himself. We're thankful, God, for the cross, which brings to us salvation. We thank you for your promises. We do look forward to that day when we are gathered together in the new heavens and earth, new earth, that we may enjoy fellowship with our Savior Jesus, that we may sup with him. Oh, come, Jesus, come quickly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.